You are listening to a Writers at Stanton podcast. Every month, Stanton Library hosts some of the world's most exciting writers and thinkers to discuss their latest books. Thank you for joining us. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of North Sydney Council and the Constant Reader Bookshop, welcome to the library and to the Writers at Stanton event. My name is Maggie Collins and I work with the Collection Services team. Before we begin these proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional owners of the lands in which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and their ancestors, past, present and emerging. In her debut novel, The Registrar, Neela Janaki... Okay, this is going to be a bit hard, so just... uh, Janaki Ramadan. Janaki Ramadan. Uh, it deeply paints an honest and evocative portrait of hospital life for young women. Dr. Neela, as I will now call you, if that's okay Thank with you. you, Dr. Neela is a highly trained plastic and re- reconstructive surgeon. Neela was schooled in Melbourne and completed her medical degree at Monash University in 2003. She immediately commenced surgical training and was awarded Fellowship of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons in Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery in 2014, having trained in major Melbourne hospitals. During this time, Neela combined the rigours of surgical training with completing a Master's of Public Health through Monash University, graduating from that degree in 2010. This gave Neela the grounding in research methodology as well as health program development and implementation, particularly in poor settings. Outside of treating her patients, Neela has a number of interests. She's involved in several research projects, both locally and internationally, and has made significant pro bono contributions in the area of refugee health. She's a writer, a regular columnist, and speaks frequently at events both within and outside of medicine. Today, Neela will be in conversation with Jane Caro, who is a a Walkley Award-winning Australian columnist, author, novelist, broadcaster, advertising writer, documentary maker, feminist, and social commentator. (laughs) She has appeared frequently on Q&A, The Drum... That's all you need to say. Oh, really? I'm just the interviewer today. <laughs> Please join with me in welcoming Neela and Jane. Thank you, Margie. Well, it's lovely to be in uh, Stanton Library doing an event again for Constant Reader. Always love doing this. Um, and thank you all for coming. It's also a great, very great pleasure to be interviewing Neela, who I know over the interwebs and various places. We both belong to a group, a subversive, um, revolutionary group called Credible Women. But we won't be telling you anything about that. So you might like to ask about it later if you want to, and you, you never know, we might. Um, and this book, of course, The Registrar, is um, eye-opening and a great pacey read, but not necessarily eye-opening in a good way if you are ever likely to end up in a hospital because it really lifts the lid on, well, 
what looks to me like a toxic culture, mm -hmm. to be perfectly honest with you. And I know it's a novel, but it certainly rang very true. Mm. But we were discussing on the way up in the lift just how little literature, how few novels are actually set in a kind of medical milieu or in hospitals or focus on that. Yes, hospitals, deathbeds, you know, all that kind of thing. Illness appear in novels a lot, but it doesn't tend to be the focal point. And yet it's hard to think of a, of a more dramatic kind of part of society. Why? Why is it so rare? I'm not sure. I think... Um I mean, we love medical drama. There's a lot of medical drama on TV. And I think with those kinds of shows, they get in medical consultants. And a lot of the time, the intent is not necessarily to focus on the medicine. It's about the interpersonal relationships and all of that sort of stuff. And so I think with medical consultants, you can kind of make it ring a little bit true. I think part of the issue with any novel that's about a very specific environment is that you need someone with the expertise of working in that environment to actually write it. And maybe doctors and nurses and everyone else who works in a hospital is just too busy to write. I don't well, know. It was the second question, which is having read the book about what it's like to train uh, to become a registrar, how on earth did you write a novel? Um, I think part of that is... I am no longer a registrar and so I do have some control over my hours and the kinds of work that I do. Um, that said, that is also a fluctuant state, mm -hmm. uh, particularly at the moment with the effects of the pandemic continuing to roll on. Healthcare is very busy um, and even for those of us who aren't working directly with um, infectious disease responses, because it's no longer just COVID, it's flu and it's RSV, yeah. it's all these other viruses as well. Um, there is this huge backlog of work that needs to be addressed. And so that's just not, not just doing the work, but also planning on how we're going to get through this volume of work. Um, but ultimately I wrote the novel and I made the time to write the novel because it was important to me to do it. Okay. Now I'm going to ask you why it was important for you to do it in just a second, but I sort of feel like I need to ask for my own benefit as much as perhaps some people in the audience is, what exactly is a registrar? Yeah, so in a hospital system, um, there are different hierarchies amongst the medical side. So when you graduate medical school, your first year is as an intern, and that is a completely supervised role. You're not allowed to work independently. Once you pass that year, you get full registration, and then you start on this pathway of becoming a specialist. And GPs are specialists too, uh, and there are GP registrars that some of you may have seen in the community. So a registrar is a specialist in training for whatever specialty that might be. Okay, thank you. So back to the other question, why was it important to you to write this novel? There were two reasons. One was a much more long-standing uh, concern of mine, which was that we have all of these stories about medicine, particularly on TV, but they're always told from a very male perspective. It is always, you know, you've got some sexy nurses, you've got some love interests, you've got maybe a female bully, and then there is that, that godly male doctor who oversees the whole thing. And, you know, if you look at a show like House, for example, there's always the person who solves the problem. Whereas women 
permeate our health system. We are 50% of doctors, we are most nurses, we are most allied health, and we are at least 50% of patients as well. And so it has long irritated me that there is this environment which is so ripe for drama and storytelling, which most of us will interact with at some point in our lives. Um, Much more likely to do that than some of the murder mysteries or police yes, dramas. I hope that we so. Want. Yes, I mean, one would, <laughs> nobody else would go to hospital, but it is understandable in comparison to jail. Yes. And so I really, it has long frustrated me that we aren't telling women's stories in this environment. And so that's what I wanted to do with the registrar. But the impetus to write the story was the loss of a friend um, who I had worked with some years ago. And it was at a stage when both of us had just stopped being a registrar. We were young specialists and she was an anaesthetist, I was a surgeon. We spent hours and hours in operating theatres together. And we told lots of stories about our time as a registrar, you know, the highlights, the lowlights, everything in between. Uh, And then... We worked together for about six months and then I left. I went overseas to do some extra training and then I came back to Australia and I didn't go back to that hospital. This is a really familiar thing. We build up these friendships in this environment. Then you move on and you just kind of assume that those people are over there doing what they've done for a long time. It was a couple of years later that I found out that she had died of suicide six months after I had worked with her. And it made me think of all of these stories that we had shared. Uh, And it brought back that long-standing frustration that these were not accessible in the public domain. And I wrote the first three chapters of the book that night. And that certainly, those first three chapters, really communicate the, not just the exhaustion and the relentlessness and the ridiculously long hours and the extraordinary decisions that have to be taken. Um, And and there is a shambolic aspect to how these things happen that did kind of shock me a bit because I think the illusion that the medical profession puts out that they've got it all under control and they all know what's happening all of the time is completely shattered in this book. Um, But also the toxic culture and the hierarchical and I would say from the way you describe it patriarchal um, and the not just the acceptance of bullying but almost the institutionalization of bullying talk a bit about that yeah I um I wrote this book from the perspective of a surgical trainee because I am a surgeon and that's what I could write authentically But these issues pervade all specialties, whether it's obstetrics or emergency medicine or even really general practice. Um, We hear a lot about it in surgery because it's been in the news over the last few years. But in a lot of ways, surgery has actually gotten better because it's been in the news and because there have been inquiries and education about it. Um, So there is this, this clear hierarchy and... And I think in part it comes, be a little bit over generous and say it comes from a good place Mm. of senior people holding this responsibility of needing to train the next generation and ensure that, you know, when we tick off on their credentialing and say, yep, they're safe for community practice uh, independently with no oversight that they genuinely are. 
But we're not taught how to train, and because we're not taught how to teach, which is of course a skill and expertise in and of itself, we teach as we have been taught. And the history of teaching in medicine is one of bullying, of harassment, of humiliation, and using humiliation to motivate people to study and learn so that they achieve the standard that they ought to. And so I think that's where I'm being a little bit generous and saying it comes from a good place, but it's not really because it harms people and it harms lives. And I've certainly, even in recent years, sat in education sessions about why bullying, harassment and assault is a bad thing to do, where senior clinicians have said things like, well, if, if we don't expose our trainees to stress, how will they respond to a patient who's bleeding to death? As if the experience of being bullied is a comparable stress to responding appropriately in a clinical environment. And there's no, not having that insight to say, well, maybe we should teach this through simulation. Is, or, it, is it maybe the other way around, mm. that in fact the, most of the people who are doing the training are themselves clinicians and practising um, surgeons mm. or whatever the speciality is, and it's not perhaps the other way around. They're not using the stress to, um, you know, somehow kind of protect the students. They're actually using the students as a way of getting rid of their own stress. Well, that's fair. That's a fair yeah. comment. Uh, and therefore they're um, venting on them because you're not bleeding to yeah. death. Well, not obviously. But from your story, yes. there is another form of bleeding to death and you, one of your characters gets very close to that. But also... How is exhaustion a good way to make people who are safe for community practice? Look, I don't think it is. I think that's the short answer. Um, the, bigger, the, the reason it's justified is breadth of experience and the number of cases that are done and the number of patients that are seen. And we do know in medicine that you can do all the study in the world, but you can't cheat experience. So I think the mythology is, well, if you make people be there for 18 hours a day, then they get more experience. And so therefore that's good. Except of course, the problem is you get to a point where you can't learn and where you're not actually being functional or safe. And of course, learning is by providing care. So if you're providing care when you're exhausted, you're not really set up to provide care appropriately. And that comes across in your character, Emma, who um, is the young woman at the centre of the book and who does have some empathy and some compassion for some of the patients that she treats. But it's quite clear that most of the people, and it's almost as if the focus of her fellow registrars, the other students that she's um, studying with or, or learning with, their focus isn't on the patients at all. Their focus is on being the top student, on pleasing the people who are going to give them marks and mm. pass them. And the patient is almost like a peripheral, um, almost like a, a thing they're, they're using to impress the mm. trainers. Yeah, and I think that comes with um, emotional capacity, that there are so many expectations that we're putting on people in these environments to be good to patients, to please their bosses, to um, achieve certain metrics that the hospital might set in terms of days patients should be in hospital or the amount of time that they wait in an emergency department. And so you've got all of these And things, pass exams constantly. And pass exams and plus be a wife or a spouse, a parent, a sibling, a, a child, friend, a friend. A human being. Yeah. And so, a novelist. 
And I think when you exceed that emotional, intellectual capacity, then people pick something. And sometimes the something that they pick is good for people outside of themselves and sometimes it is to protect themselves or achieve their own goals. And again, if I'm generous, if we're not giving people the capacity to meet all of their requirements, all of the things that, all of the demands that are placed on their time, can we really criticise them for picking one rather than the other? Well, it's also interesting in that you, with your character Emma, who's the centre, and then her brother Andy, who is a very important Mm. character in the story, um, who are both uh, at at different stages in their training, and Andy is also married with twins. I love the way you loaded them up with twins. Um, And, uh, you know, but they come from a family of medical practitioners and the father, um, Professor Swan, is a really powerful presence in the book and I would have to say not in a good way. Mm. Talk about that a bit. Is that your experience that there are like, um, you know, medical families? Yes, yes. Medical dynasties are very much a thing. Uh, The reason that I, I wanted to put them in that medical family is because From my perspective in a hospital, these are people generally with relative power within the system. They have connections, they have, um, they come with that sort of uh, authority or assumed competence because of who their parent is. They know how the system runs. They've often been taken into that hospital environment since they were a young child. And the reason that I made Emma and Andy situated within that and then all of these dreadful things happen, was to make the point that even that isn't protective. I worried that if, for example, I'd made the main protagonist, you know, brown, female, disabled, you know, add add other Mm -hmm. demographic features, that it would have been very easy for people to dismiss her experiences as being caused by those things Mm -hmm. um, rather than the system itself. So So this is a a privileged white woman at the centre of this. Yes, I just wanted to strip away Mm. all of that disadvantage and say the system's still broken. Mm -hmm. And these people still Mm. struggle and you really communicate the level of struggle. Um, Emma is in a relationship with the absolutely, I mean, oh, goodness, where did where did she find Shamshi? I want him. He's like a <laughs> saint, that guy, like what he puts up with yes. and continues to yeah. be, you know, totally understanding and supportive of her ambitions and her career. Mm. Um, and, and you very cleverly show how exhaustion, and which is cumulative, so yes. the, the exhaustion at the beginning is bad enough, but as we go through the story, the exhaustion of the characters becomes even more profound. Le- I, this is my interpretation, and you may disagree, mm. leads Emma to make a fatal error of judgment mm. about one of her superiors, who seems at first to be the only decent bloke in the mm. bunch, but of course, I, I, I tweaked it, I went on. <laughs> yeah. yep. Don't trust him. And that that story arc of that relationship was one that I I mulled over for a long time. And what I find interesting is how readers interpret that on a scale of culpability versus um, sort of being preyed upon mm. um, in Emma and also in in David's behaviour. Um, 
one of the things that I looked at in, that, in the arc of their exhaustion was actually looking at burnout, which there is a lot of discussion about, um, even in, in normal media these days. But no one ever talks about what burnout really is no. or what it looks like. And so what I wanted to do was actually demonstrate what it looks like as it happens, the, the loss of interest, the loss of friends, the loss of... Um, the increasing irritability and irascibility, uh, the inability to engage in meaningful ways, loss of relationships and, and just... And the externalisation of blame, because that's yep. what I thought came across really strongly through all the characters, was that they were all struggling, so they're all externalising mm. their struggle and blaming others. And to some extent, Emma loses faith in Shamshi mm. um, in their relationship and is tempted mm. uh, to think that maybe it's his fault and she'd be better off with someone else. Mm. Mm. And I think that that part of the issue, I think, is in those hierarchical workplaces, powerful men know how to use that to their advantage. It's also charismatic power yep. is an aphrodisiac, you know. Yep. It, and, yep. and to an extent, it's a form of grooming as mm. well. I mean, we don't often apply that to workplaces. It is often a term that is um, isolated to children, as, as it should be. Mm. But significant power imbalances in workplaces can work the same way. And so he also separates her out from her friends, makes her feel special, makes her feel like she he's the only person she can confide in. These kinds of behaviours that we see in the child sexual, sexual assault space And Bill as well. Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, exactly. in fact, precisely mm. the same. Yeah. So it does happen in adult mm. workplaces. I think we don't... It's not as clear-cut. Yes. Um, as to who has, well, it should be with a president and an intern, but perhaps not everyone realises it. Um, but yeah, exactly. And it was interesting as we were talking when we were having a coffee before this about uh, my husband went to boarding school from an early age and a lot of the things you described in this reminded me of the kind of hazing and um, brutal culture that often went along with those boarding schools in the 50s, 60s, 70s. I mean, I'm hoping it doesn't still happen, though we hear about some of the university colleges and clearly it does. So do you think there's part of it is a, a learned behaviour? So you're talking about no one teaches you how to teach so then you teach the way you were taught that it's not just about the way you were taught in your hospital when you were training but, but right back to the school you went to given that yeah. you know our medicos particularly our specialists do tend to come a bit like our judges and yes. our legal system yeah. do tend to come from a very narrow band of society yeah. um Acknowledging that Victoria has more private schools than New South Wales does, in my cohort of 160 medical students, only two went to a public school and mm. everyone else went to a private school. Uh, and I don't think that that has improved. Um, and I don't think it necessarily makes better doctors. Um, the Netherlands has selects uh, medical students on the basis of a lottery. Mm. Uh, because, and there's a very complex history to that. But what they have demonstrated over about 50 years of doing it, including a period of time where they went back to these merit-based academic selection... Ah, the old merit. ..is that the lottery does a better job of selecting comprehensive, good doctors than, than humans do. It's funny, isn't it? Because we have a jury system that operates according to a lottery. Mm. Those people get to decide who's innocent and who's guilty, but we won't do it anywhere else. Why not? 
Well, I think that's because the jury system is a, a jury duty is a burden, whereas this is a highly means paid, to, yeah, a yeah. highly paid. Uh, yeah. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the doctors. There's also something in this that really struck me about, and it's going back to what you were talking about about medical drama and the hero doctor mm. and all of that. That there's an enormous amount of ego involved in some of the. Mm. Um, senior and powerful characters but also in some of the younger doctors mm. as well and I wondered about that do you have to have a pretty strong ego a bit of a god complex you've heard the joke haven't you what's the difference between a surgeon and god and I haven't heard the joke. god doesn't think that she's a surgeon ah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think I think you have to have a strong personality mm-hmm. because when there is a crisis um the kind of leadership that is required to manage that is actually quite important. And so I think an amount of robustness of character is necessary, particularly in certain roles, not in all roles, but in certain roles. But I don't think there is a lot of space for ego Mm. because we're there to serve patients. We're there to understand them, not as a disease, not as an organ or a limb, but as a comprehensive person. And if you're bringing your own ego into that consulting room, then you can't possibly provide good medical care. And I suspect that patients are pretty good at picking up which doctors are actually uh, able to connect with them and which are actually the ego-driven technicians. Um, You also have, and I did love this, um, a a thread of humour going all the way through the book about the efforts by the hospital administrators who have obviously picked up that, you know, there's a, there's a problem with uh, morale yes. and all that kind of thing. And so they do a whole lot of things. Love your comment on some of the things they choose to do about improving staff wellbeing. Yes. We've all been there. Mm. And doesn't it always work? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, hilarious. And it's, it's not just that hospitals are trying to... I mean, all corporate workplaces are doing it, but in hospitals it's almost worse because there are individuals who are trying to build their careers on it. So there is academic research on doctor wellness and doctor's health, and it's a a real means by which people can promote themselves rather than actually... um, So the ego is driving rather than the actual concern about the wellbeing. Yeah. And that comes across... I mean, they do things like put plants in the tea room which proceed to die because nobody looks after them. And they have oranges because they realise that the doctors are surviving on the food you can get from the vending machine because they don't have time to eat properly, which is another issue that comes out, that, that basically these are health practitioners, but their lifestyle is incredibly unhealthy. I mean, if they had a patient in their room saying, this is my life, they'd say, well, you've got to change, you know, you're going to die young. Um, but they're doing exactly that. Yeah, um, there's not a lot autobiographical in here, but the 3C diet of uh, chips, Coke and chocolate is certainly something that I have subsisted on. Yeah, yeah, definitely strongly came across that this was not the place. And I don't think the oranges got eaten really either. Um, But how can this change? What do you think? I mean, obviously you've written this book, I Mm. think, with an eye to opening the eyes of the public as to Mm. what's happening in the health system and how exploited, I think I would have to say, young doctors are being. How does this, how do you change this? How, how, how do we make it 
a more sustainable model so that we're not burning people out just because they're decent human beings and leaving only the uh, narcissists and the psychopaths left. Um, look, the good news in all of this is that I think it is changing. And, you know, one of the things I really... I mean, I love my job. You know, that's the first thing I would say. Um, and there are aspects of my time as a registrar that I look back at very fondly. The camaraderie, the friendship, the hanging around in the residence room playing air hockey. Or, and you're or doing important things. You're doing yeah. important work. Yeah. And so I think that... I think that things are changing and improving. I think... Um, there are a lot of people who are aware of these issues and certainly when I was a registrar, pregnant registrar, twice, there, there weren't a lot of people I could approach for advice and support. Whereas now I would say that in every hospital in this country there is at least someone, usually a woman but not always, um, that I can point anyone to and say go talk to that person at the Gold Coast Hospital or go talk to this person at, you know, this hospital in Perth. Um, so I think that by, by supporting people and showing that there are better ways of doing things, we're empowering more people to do it. So I think that that change is coming. Do I, you think that'll have a knock-on effect to how patient care, to treating, mm -hmm. you know, the most important people in hospitals, yes. the patients, yes. better? Um, and, and I must say that in part, initially when I wrote the first draft, it was to tell healthcare worker stories. As it progressed, um, partway through uh, the multiple drafting processes, one of my children was diagnosed with a chronic illness. And so even though I have been a patient, being the parent of a child who needed hospital admissions and ongoing medical care was again a very enlightening um, experience. I have multiple friends with chronic illnesses and long hospitalisation history. So talking to them as well made me really think about what I needed to put into this book to highlight not only the patient experience but also hopefully to give people who might read it the skills to understand what is happening behind that curtain, behind that door when they're still just sitting in a waiting room. Um, and even though philosophically I strongly believe it is not patients' responsibilities to change a broken system. That is for us to do. I think that if patients have high expectations and demands and vote with their feet and not see and not tolerate care from doctors who are not serving them in the way that they ought to, that ultimately changes it sometimes to a financial proposition and that can drive change as well. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because it's my experience that when you are ill and you become a patient, mm. there is a kind of regression that happens. There is a kind of helplessness. Mm. And that puts you in a, a, a childlike, uh, one-down kind of position. Yeah. Something about human beings when they're helpless. Yeah. They don't feel they're able to assert themselves terribly well. Oh, it's a vulnerability. It's a knowledge gap. You know, we talk about informed consent, but when I speak to a patient, I cannot put my 25 years of training into their head. And so you're trying to guide care in the most respectful way, but it is fundamentally a patriarchal relationship mm. in a lot of ways. And I think that's what makes it feel very childlike as a patient because you are very much at the mercy of these grown-ups, if you will, who are telling you what's right and what's not right and what decision you should make about the most fundamental aspects of your being, which is what children do. And sometimes, let's hope most of the time, you get someone who's 
genuinely caring about improving your health. Uh, but sometimes, as we've seen in many um, highly publicised newspaper articles about doctors behaving incredibly badly, often, unfortunately, in surgery, um, there are people in the profession that are there, it seems, for reasons other than caring for patients, Mm. almost the opposite, in fact. Yeah. And what can be really hard for a patient is differentiating who they need to be really choosy about. So, for example, I have a a specialist that I send patients to, and his role is to perform a test. And he does that test very well. He's very grumpy. He's not very nice. But they really only need to be there for about 15 minutes, and he does the test well. And so I will send... And, and you can generally get in pretty quickly. And so I will say to patients... Because he's grumpy and not very nice, yeah. Oh, but he also... He's older, he doesn't have kids, he works a lot, he works on weekends as well. So he's, he's very accessible. And so I will tell patients, look... This guy isn't the nicest guy on the planet, but you need this test. He does this test well. I'm really sorry for sending you to him. Just just suck it up and go see this guy. Um, And so I think that's where particularly if you have a good primary care physician, they can guide that. You know, there are some surgeons who are technically really good at what they do and maybe they are the best person to do this particular procedure. But what I hope is that as time goes on, we can close that gap so that the people who are technically excellent are also the people who are going to be really kind. It's interesting because given that our medical structure has been so hierarchical for so long, because, you know, I was reminded very much of reading about uh, Florence Nightingale trying to get nurses into... um, hospitals in the Crimea and how the doctors were absolutely opposed to the whole thing and the way she was treated. So it's, it's a very long-standing tradition of we, we do it this way, we've always done it this way, and we want to keep doing it this way. But hierarchies across our society are breaking down. That's one of the reasons we've got such alarm in many quarters. Um, you know, the media is being smashed and shattered into a thousand different parts Uh, through social media so we've got the mainstream media feeling almost Mm. affronted by Mm. the fact that you know a lot of their power a lot of the hierarchy is being taken away Mm. from them we have um, I think that's the thing isn't it with um, renewable energy it's Mm. no longer concentrated in you know you can't make the same kind of money out of sun and wind that you could make out of digging coal and Mm. um, gas which needed big infrastructures and people in power and rich people (coughs) to make decisions What you seem to be describing in this book is the beginnings, the sort of tiny green shoots of the smashing of the medical hierarchy as well, which will in the end lead to an empowering of patients. We've seen a rebellion of patients, perhaps not in a good way, during the pandemic of the refusal to accept the evidence of epidemiologists. This isn't just by patients, but this is by politicians and everything. There's a kind of ignoring of medical advice. How do you balance out? We need to empower patients. We need them to, you know, have more say in their treatment and be treated with more respect by those who treat them. And yet, how do we also recognise the 25 years of training, the expertise, and actually um, value that? How do we balance those two? That's a million-dollar question, Jane. Um, I think it's... 
you make a very good point. I mean, part of the reason wellness influencers, for example, have such a strong, uh, such a stronghold, if we're honest, is because medicine has caused harm and injury to people, even as it has improved health. Um, and particularly the Western tradition of medicine, doctors were providing much poorer care than nurses for an extremely long time. And in fact, you know, Joseph Lister and the um, concept of antisepsis and washing your hands literally came about because doctors would go from the dissecting room to the delivery room and kill women by introducing infections from unpreserved cadavers. And the midwives knew what was happening and they'd say, can you wash your hands before you do this? And they would say, oh no, gentlemen don't have dirty hands, you know. And so this is the history of medicine. And I think we can't, medicine is not going to win, not that I think it should be a binary argument, but medicine is not going to win by relying on cold hard science because people are not machines to tinker with. Um, they will make, and again, we saw this in the pandemic, people will make their own decisions in what they feel is their best interest and you may be successful in collectivising action and getting people to act in the interests of the community and you may do so for a time, but ultimately people will act in what they think is their best interest. And so public health is about bringing people along for a, for a journey. Clinical care is also about bringing people along for a journey and I think that that's what wellness influences do. And even though what they are often peddling is not scientific, sometimes it makes people feel better. And people remember how they feel, not what they were told or the mm. care that, that they were provided. And I think that is the challenge for medicine, is to make it more humane. And I think that's what the core of your book is, isn't mm. it? That what has been neglected, and you use young doctors to illustrate it, what has been neglected is the emotional human part of the medical system, the patients, yes, but also the practitioners. Mm. They are being expected to be cogs in a machine, mm. to operate literally and metaphorically as um, almost automated, uh, as creatures and beings that don't need sleep, that don't need decent food, that don't get stressed that uh, can just keep going, 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 going. Mm. And so the humanity has in fact yeah. been removed. And that's what your book very, very strongly, I think, puts back in, this mm. idea of ordinary, flawed, well-meaning to the m most part, mm. human beings mm. operating in an inhuman system. Mm. And the last book really that that I can point to that was written a bit like this is a book called The House of God. And it was written in the 1960s. It hasn't really stood up particularly well. It's quite racist. It's quite sexist. But there's a very small reference to it in my book. Um, that book starts off with the protagonist um, on a holiday at the end of uh, their first year of working in a hospital. And he is jumping at shadows and he sees old people in the garden and he has almost a panic attack because he remembers these challenging situations that he had to face. PTSD. And the thing that, though that I found really troublesome about that book is it's not the patients 
that are the problem. The patients are actually the best part of the job. And so when doctors are traumatised, to me it didn't ring true that it was the patients that were terrifying them, because it's not. Um, I think we have to give healthcare workers broadly the opportunity to do the best part of their job, which is interacting with patients, providing care, watching people get better, giving them comfort. Or helping them to, as one of your characters mm. does, mm. face terrible diagnoses mm. and inevitable uh, death in the kindest and most humane way possible, mm. which you do beautifully with that story arc mm. about Jackie through the book. Well, I'm thinking I might, talking about interacting uh, with patients, and uh, you've been very patient, um, perhaps you have some questions you'd like to ask Neela about her book, about her job, about the medical system in general, about our society, whatever you fancy. You've got an opportunity. I'd grab it. Here's a lady at the front. Hang on. I think a microphone's going to come. interesting that uh, I read this book because uh, just in the last two, three months I've come across of quite a few cases of like friends, friends, friends uh, telling that the amount of suicides that take place and that is not publicized. And I was talking to a friend and he said his daughter, uh, daughter's a doctor and of her cohorts of nine people, seven had committed suicide. So he's got her out of the hospital system and she's working with NDIS. He said, if she stays in the hospital, I don't want her to become a statistic. So how, why is that suicide so suppressed and nobody knows about it outside? Um, it's well known about in medicine. Um, every single one ripples through the medical community with incredible sadness. Uh, doctors have somewhere between a two and a half and four times the rate of completion of suicide of the general population. Uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. The first is that the rates of mental health issues that affect any population are reflected in doctors as well. So if X percentage of people have depression or bipolar disorder or something else in any population, that percentage of doctors will have it as well. In addition to that, you have um, the trauma of the work that is actually being done, not having the opportunity to um, process that or debrief from that adequately. Um, so vicarious trauma is very real. Um, the moral injury of not being able to provide the care that you think you should provide, um, that can cause trauma and harm as well. But then on top of those systemic factors, um, healthcare workers are in a unique category because we have specialised knowledge and access to um, things like drugs. So we know how to complete. And so that's why completion of suicide is actually relatively high um, among healthcare workers compared to the population. It's very sobering. Mm. Thank you for bringing that up. And so many parents who really want their children to be doctors. Maybe not. So, sorry, I should say one more. Just one recent one. Mm. Uh, I came to know that he actually threw himself uh, on a train and he's lost both his legs. And he woke up. Um, so he committed suicide just recently. This is that That's actually affected me a lot. Mm. Um, and uh, he woke up. 
he was a friend of my son's and so my son went to visit him and he said he was so happy because I, I and I said why was he happy I said oh maybe he's happy he's alive but then he's happy he doesn't have to go back to medicine yeah. just to yeah. explain if you didn't hear the first part this person threw themselves under a train and lost their legs yeah. that's uh, an extreme way of getting out of a job yeah there's um, and I do write this briefly into the book as well I think lots it's actually very normal in medicine for people to have thoughts of injuries or illnesses that might that they might get to get them out of work um, I, I remember there was one particular term I did where I would I walk out to the car every morning and there would just be this fleeting thought that if I just lay down in front of it and let it roll over my ankle then that would at least be six weeks off work it's like a war zone where they yeah. shoot themselves in the foot yeah um, I know that discussion about mental health and suicide can be triggering so if this is um, please feel free to walk out and you know seek support as you need it um, but yes, it is, it's, it's a really difficult and challenging problem and one of the real reasons why we are having these conversations. Um, there's a statistic, I think, in the US, something like one in a thousand patients has lost their doctor. Well, on that note, um, does anyone else have a question? Yes, lady and the, the gentleman. Oh, lady over here, then yeah, there's a lady and a gentleman. Sorry. Um, yeah, I was interested in um, the Jackie situation um, where Jackie said, I'd rather, can, are you just going to chop my leg off because that would work better for me? And the surgeon said, no, we'll do this and we'll do these fancy things and try this new thing instead of actually listening to her and her... Um, she felt that that would better suit her lifestyle just to have the leg removed. How much does the doctors actually pay attention to the lifestyle of their patients and what their choices are? Yeah, um, that, that's a really good question. I think good doctors do. Um, if I strip that, that back to... If I were the clinician taking care of Jackie as the character that I wrote... Um, the care that she was asking for is not something that would have served her purposes well and the care that was being offered actually did. But what that highlights is the lack of communication, the lack of time and care that has been spent to explain these different options and why they exist um, and the time and care to appreciate the core of her concern which is, I don't want to die. I want to be able to do the things that I want to do and I don't want to die and I want the treatment that's going to best give these to me. And in that scene, Emma, the protagonist, is quite dismissive but again, that was later in the book where her burnout is really starting to manifest and that is one of the symptoms of burnout and so part, that was part of her character arc in the story of starting off being committed to being a good doctor, being the person who listened to these issues and addressed them and turning into someone that she actually never wanted to be in the first place. Thank you. Good afternoon, Neela. I would actually like to know what made you decide to choose the specialty that you're doing now? Oh, that, that's a very good question. Um, for me, it was a combination of interest and mentors. Um, 
I think it's very hard to pinpoint exactly why we're interested in one thing or over another, you know, why someone chooses embroidery and someone chooses crochet. I think it's as simple as that. Um, I enjoyed the nature of the work and the nature of the surgery that, that my specialty involves. Uh, but then, drilling further down into it, it came down to the people who gave me support, who said, come along to my rooms and see some patients with me, or come and, you know, I'll give you this job, even though you're not quite qualified for it. Uh, and so people support you and you progress through that career. That said, um, a lot of my registrar training was done with people who weren't my mentors and supporters. And in that environment, almost every single year of my training, I got to the end of it and thought, that's it, I'm going to leave. I've had enough. So do you specialise in any one particular field? Yeah, so most of my work is complex hand and wrist surgery. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Gentleman here, what's the next? Uh, thank you, Dr. Janaki um, I uh, I've been reading about uh, certain articles about mm -hmm. corporate world. Sorry, I make myself visible. Um, there's something called as uh, quiet quit quitting, where um, employees yes. who are feeling burnt out, they are taking a step back yep. and limiting their hours of work, ignoring work emails or work calls after hours. Mm. Is that some you know an option that medical professionals have? or that's completely out of either you're in there yeah. doing 12 to 18 hours or just nothing yeah i i saw this the other day as well about um the question was about quiet quitting about not actually quitting your job but actually pulling back and not doing the extra work and leaving on time and protecting yourself um, I think the challenge in medicine is, be, is that there is this relentless sense that someone's life is at stake. And if you walk away, that's someone who's not going to get an operation. And if that patient doesn't get an operation, then they're not going to be able to go home. And if they don't go home, they're occupying a hospital bed that someone else who's currently on a trolley in the emergency department can't go into. And if you can't get that patient off the trolley in the emergency department, then the patient who's in the back of an ambulance, which has ramped 15 ambulances down the road at the front of the hospital, well, they're not going to get into the emergency department at all, and they might die in an ambulance. So there is this relentless, never-ending sense of we hold people's lives in our hands. And this is why I think bureaucrats and administrators get the labour out of us that they do. So you're being exploited, your goodwill mm. and your uh, professional and, and human concern mm. for suffering and um, illness is being exploited. Mm. Uh, and nurses as well. Nurses, yeah. allied health, the entire health system. Yeah, teachers as well, early childhood educators, mm. aged care educators, all of them, yep. the same thing, being exploited and overworked because they feel so responsible for the people they care for. Yeah. And so we do see a little bit of that in general practice at the moment where GPs have their a little bit more control, but then they draw the ire of their community. Well, I can't get in to see the GP. Now I have to wait three weeks and that doctor's only working two days a week. Why can't they work three? So there is that immense feedback. One final question. Lucky last. Someone sitting on something they're dying to ask. Yes, Lady in the Purple. Yep. You mentioned the bureaucrats and the administrators. Do you think there are too many of them and that, like the teachers, the medical staff are required to do far too much in the way of 
paperwork and filling out forms instead of concentrating on caring for patients? Yeah, I've um, recently stepped into the role as uh, clinical director uh, at my organisation and that has been a remarkable insight into the administrative burden that goes into running a hospital. Um, so two months ago I would have said yes, definitely too many bureaucrats and administrators. Now I have sympathy for their job. And that is, as a clinician, I have a privilege of treating the patient in front of me. And to a certain extent, I can ignore the patients I can't see, even though they don't exist. And at no point do I have to make a decision not to treat someone because the resources don't exist. That's what administrators and bureaucrats have to do every single day. They are looking at waiting lists of thousands of patients trying to get an outpatient's clinic appointment or thousands of patients trying to get surgery. And it's their job to say, well, the system can't do this, so we're going to draw a red line through this particular health condition. We're no longer servicing that at this hospital. We're going to draw a red line through this other operation. We're just not going to do that anymore because if we do that, then um, we can't treat this other more urgent condition. And so I have sympathy for a role which requires them to be quite actuarial and quite um, brutal and I think it really takes a to its toll on them after a while. Uh, so, you know, what is the solution? Um, an unlimited bucket of money and a lot of nurses would probably go a good way to fixing a lot of problems. Well, unfortunately, I think we've run out of time. Um, but, fortunately, Neela will be signing books after you've bought them. <laughs> at the back of the room. Don't forget, you need to buy them. Um, I know this is a library, but nevertheless. Um, so after you've bought them, Neela will be signing books. And of course, if you have more questions, I'm sure she'll uh, happily ask, answer what she can in the process of that book signing. Um, but in the meantime, can we thank Neela, not just for coming this afternoon and answering these questions um, with such candour and with such insight, but also for taking what must have been very limited amounts of time and writing this book, which gives us... Uh, an insider's view of a system we all experience but know surprisingly little about. So thank you very much. It's wonderful. And, and the book is a great read. Really fantastic read. Thank you. So get your credit cards out. <laughs> we hope you have enjoyed spending your time with us. Catch up with more of our audio recordings and relive the discussion, insights and laughter of writers at Stanton. To find out more about our other events and programs, please visit www.northsydney.nsw.gov.au forward slash library. Thank you for listening.